This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. It's really great to see um, familiar faces and to welcome staff from the museum as well. My name is Sue Saxon, and I'm at the, looking after programming at the museum and would like to welcome you and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and those emerging. So it's great to see you here for the penultimate, the fifth lunchtime lecture series, lecture in our series, exploring Australians who've shaped our nation and who featured in the 200 treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. I think um, you'll agree with me that each session has been absolutely eye-opening and that Ita Buttrose, Lane Beachley, George Miller and Dick Smith have shared really inspiring insights into the forces that have shaped both their lives and careers. But today we have a very special guest. In fact, we have two special guests. Today, Kim McKay, our Director and CEO of the Australian Museum, is joined by renowned ABC journalist Tracy Holmes in a sparkling conversation traversing the concept and context of the 200 Treasures exhibition. She'll be talking about her vision for the future of the museum and her professional journey to leading Australia's oldest and most prestigious museum of natural sciences, indigenous and Pacific culture, and its 21 million strong collection. Kim McKay was appointed to the director's role in 2014, and she's the first woman to hold that role in the museum's nearly 200-year-old history. In that time, she's initiated an impressive transformation program, including enshrining free general admission for children into government policy, constructing new award-winning spaces, which include the Crystal Hall and, of course, Westpac Long Gallery, and establishing the Australian Museum Centre for Citizen Science which is part of AMRI, the Australian Museum Research Institute. So as always, there'll be an opportunity for your questions, so have them ready. And now, please join me in welcoming Tracy Holmes to kick off this session. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sue. Um, I'd just like to say that uh, I, I know you've heard from the four speakers beforehand, and Kim was just joking to me that, you know, I get the lucky opportunity of introducing the B-list. Far from it. Far from it. Um, Kim has been an expert on the other side of the microphone, and uh, now it's my turn to try and coax the best out of her, as she's done with each of the previous guests. Well, when you consider that a museum is a place where um, we like to house and store and reflect on pieces of historic, cultural, scientific and uh, artistic value, then you could not have anyone better to run this place. And I also don't doubt that after Kim and you and I have long departed this planet, there will be a tribute to Kim here inside this museum because she qualifies on all fronts. The work she's done, yeah, well, why not? <laughs> Embalmed and hung over the crystal entry, I would have thought, Kim. So over the many years of service to the environment that we live in, uh, Kim has not only helped change the country, uh, but also in the four years here, she's really changed the Australian Museum and the recognition that it is now afforded around the world. 
Personally, I think one of her greatest achievements is as co-founder of the Clean Up Australia and Clean Up the World campaign, which we'll get her to talk about. But as anyone who has ever worked with her and every single one of her staff here will be able to tell you, every minute is another opportunity to do something. Kim's energy knows no bounds. Please welcome her. Kim, if truth be told, you could be sitting here on your own giving, uh, you know, a half-hour monologue. You really don't need a sidekick. Um, so I'm not actually sure what my role is here. <laughs> but let me start with this. When, when you look back over a lifetime of um, not just the work you've done, the, the, the volunteer stuff that you've done that has taken you around the world, that has seen you involved in so many different aspects that do actually make a difference to the world we live in, what is it that you feel most proud of? It's really interesting because I don't often reflect on that. Um, I, I'm always a great believer that you're only as good as the last thing you just did or achieved and I'm always on to the next thing. So I don't often sit down and reflect on, oh, that's great, I'm really proud of that. I, I try and take joy in everything I do. Um, probably the rev opposite question to that is, what am I most embarrassed by? <laughs> there could be a whole raft of things there. Um, look, obviously, um, co-founding Cleanup 20-odd years ago, 25 years ago now, um, it was just the right project at the right time and taking it internationally, um, which really was my um, project, was very satisfying and getting to see people all over the world respond and getting to see the commonality um, of the problem around the globe. And the most disappointing aspect of that now is, of course, that 25 years ago, there should have been just much more action uh, to stop plastic in the world's oceans or um, the way we consume packaging. Um, so the waste issue to me was sort of a barometer for other environmental issues. But it was, so it was very early, I guess, in community awareness to get involved in that and to think up of how to run a national project like that was really good fun. And um, Not just national, but when it went international, because so many of us, we, we see situations and we go, what could we do to help? How can we do that? How can we get involved? Um, you know, people stop my husband all the time who, who is Indigenous and they say, we want to make a difference, but how do we do it? How did you do that? How did you take this program nationally and then internationally to convince people it's really simple? Just do your bit. Well, I think for any project or program to work, it has to be a good idea at the right time. You know, we've discussed here over the last few weeks people's achievements and timing being critical to that. Uh, with Clean Up Australia, it, it had a number of elements going for it that it was... You know, I'm a great believer that community participation makes the difference. It makes... causes behaviour change if you can get hands-on and grapple with a problem. You know, it's not liking something on Facebook. That's not participation. And Clean Up was great because it was sort of easy to do, it, it, but it really made a significant difference to the people involved. And the first um, Clean Up of Sydney Harbour, which was on the 8th of January 1989, it was a Sunday, a beautiful January Sunday, um, 
40,000 people turned out. Now, we only get 20,000 to the football finals the other day <laughs> in Sydney. So it was an extraordinary turnout of the community. And what was most revealing about that, apart from the 5,000 odd tonnes of rubbish that the community dragged out of the harbour and we had been using Sydney Harbour as a garbage dump since white settlement. And that was really shocking to discover in that way. But um, it was the five, the 3,000 syringes we picked up on the beaches around the harbour and that wasn't known about. There was the needle exchange program in the cross at the time and needles were being dropped in the streets, washed down the stormwater drains and um, floated right across the harbour depending on which way the wind and the currents took the needles. And of course this was at the height of the AIDS crisis awareness here. And um, so to pick up 3,000 needles off the beaches was just a staggering um, thing to discover and of course changed government policy immediately. Mm. Um, you're the first woman to run this institution in its 190-year history, the first non-scientist. I think the Liberal Party is looking for someone just like you. <laughs> well, I live in Warringah, <laughs> so... Uh, what are you waiting for, Kim? <laughs> um, yeah. Look, I guess... This job is um, is a wonderful job. How, how, did you, how did you come into this job? Oh, kismet. Um, I was invited by the state government to serve on the trust, to become a trustee of the museum, um, due to my background working for National Geographic and Discovery Channel in the United States for a decade, and the work I'd done with Clean Up and other projects. And I'd done a lot of citizen science projects. And... Um, I had never considered running the Australian Museum at all. But inside me there was this desire to do something significant. Um, I was working for myself at the time, my consultancy. I'd come back from America, started a consulting company doing a lot in the sustainability area, wrote a number of books in the True Green series. There were tip books about the environment. Because none of that was significant. So you were looking no. to do something significant, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, no, Cle cleaning up the world was not significant yeah. enough. No, well, I was ready for something else significant, <laughs> something new. And uh, and the director, Frank Howarth, who was here, was stepping down after uh, 10 years. And the ad appeared in the paper on my birthday. And I was away with a bunch of girlfriends who I've been friends with for a very long time and they're very honest people and know me very well. And uh, we were sitting around and I said, oh, look, here's the ad for the museum director. And I read it out to them. And they all looked at me and they said, that's you. And uh, I, that was really the first time I'd looked and thought about it in that way. So I started thinking about it and waited to the very last day when applications closed. And I didn't even write a cover letter. I just sent my resume to the headhunters and said, oh, you'll see I'm on the trust. Um, I'm interested. And then I rang Catherine Livingston, who was the president of the Trust, and her governance shutter came down immediately and we didn't speak a friendly word again until <laughs> it was all over. But uh, it was the first time I'd applied for a job in, um, since I was 22. I'd been offered all my jobs since in that period. So it was a really scary uh, process to go through. And, and because I wasn't a man, now that may sound funny, but 
I knew most of the, you know, if you look at a lot of before I started here, all the museum directors in Australia were, were men pretty much, one woman at the time. And they were mostly, they were all scientists pretty much of, of natural history museums. So being the first non-scientist, and I joke and say that, well, I'm a social scientist, that's part of what I studied, which is the worst kind of scientist of all, you know. <laughs> so it was, um, it was a really interesting process to go through um, that recruitment through a headhunting firm and, you know, I had to have 13 referees. Everyone else, I think, had about three or four. And it was because there was nervousness amongst um, some of the other trustees that because I wasn't a scientist, they'd be hung out to dry. That is a phenomenal story in itself, you know, that, that you have to go through um, a completely different process to all of the others that had applied. Were, had all the, um, were all the men that applied uh, scientists? British men. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, there were a few Australians. I knew I'd be up against in the, when it got down to the final two, I guessed it would be a British man because there was this feeling that they're the only people who can run museums. Mm. And so once you um, had their confidence and you got the job, you must have come in here thinking, do I tread softly for the first six months or do I just go to town and and do what you do best, Kim? How how long have you known me? (laughs) Um, Tread softly was not in my vocabulary and I wasn't intending to do that. In fact, a lovely former director here, a beautiful man... Uh, Frank Talbot, who's in his 80s now, who was the director here and went on to run the Smithsonian in Washington. He um, took me to lunch not long after I started and gave me his advice. And he said, you know, Kim, I just spent the first year observing. I said, oh, God, Frank, it's a bit late for that. <laughs> you know, it was. I think it was on my first day here that I decided that they'd put the entrance in the wrong spot, which had been there for 145 years, on College Street... And uh, it needed to change. So I marched down my first week to the Department of... We were then in the Department of um, Trade and Industry. And I said to them, thank you for giving me the job to run this museum, but it's in need of some help. (laughs) I actually didn't say it quite that subtly. And uh, so I walked out, you know, a week later I had the money to build Crystal Hall. So, you know, you've got to be determined. And I, I guess they were looking for someone who would um, breathe some new life into mm. the museum. And, and so the ideas and the concepts, you've never been short of an idea. It doesn't matter what job you were doing. But the concept for the Westpac Long Gallery and the 200 treasures, where did that come from? Um, I'm good at stealing ideas. So I think um, the British Museum... You know, Neil McGregor, the former director of the British Museum, had published the book on um, 100 Objects That Changed the World. And I thought, well, you know, in our collection, we have 21 million objects and specimens. There are certainly good stories in that collection that can be shared. And um, so sort of taking a a leaf from the British Museum's idea, um, what if we put 100 objects? And, And, of course... These things cost much more than you ever think. I mean, 
the budget we drew for the Long Gallery restoration was $9 million. And I wanted to do something significant for our 190th that would be a legacy and be a new attraction for the museum and show more of the collection. And um, we started... I knew I'd need to raise some corporate sponsorship money and the head of the Department of Trade and Industry had said to me, well, if you can find a corporate partner for $3 million, we'll match it and give you $3 million from the government. And then we said we could raise up to $3 million from donors. And um, that seemed to me like, good, three, three is nine. Okay, we can do that. And then, of course, um, I realised it was Westpac's 200th anniversary coming up of, at the same time we turned 190. And Westpac had been our major partner for Clean Up Australia way back when. So there were still a few people kicking around who knew me. And, um, and I just started reaching out to people I knew and... Um, Eventually, we convinced them it was a great idea, but we made it 200 treasures then because it was their 200th anniversary. But we wanted to have our 100 objects, but that's where the people came from, the 100 people. And, and how did you select the people? Because any list, it doesn't matter if you're talking, you know, sports stars, politicians, actors and actresses, you know, the world's most impressive people. How do you come up with 100 people? and make it non-controversial? Or is part of the trick to make it as controversial as possible and get people talking? <laughs> yes, we did want to make it more controversial. So we started <laughs> off by researching all the other lists that existed. Who were, who were the people on those lists? And what became screamingly obvious was there weren't enough women on the list. And there's certainly, it must have been like a Liberal Party meeting. And, there's, and there weren't enough Indigenous people on the list either who'd contributed so significantly. And by sort of stepping into the foray of social history, um, I wanted to make sure that the list was more reflective of, of the true Australia. You know, growing up, learning about Australian history, women weren't featured very much in our history books. I mean, I always say, ask people this question, who knows who Mary Lee is? Okay. So Mary Lee is in the... 100 people lists, if you go into the gallery upstairs. Mary Lee was a woman I learned about through work. I, I was doing some consulting work for the Royal Australian Mint and they um, wanted to... International Women's Day was coming up and they wanted to put a woman on a coin. And we were sitting around brainstorming. They wanted someone from history and, of course, Carolyn Chisholm was already on the $5 note. And, and the more I thought about this, the more I realised I just didn't know any names of women other than maybe MacArthur and, you know, from our early history and started looking into it and came across Mary Lee, who was from South Australia. And she led the suffragette movement. And, of course, South Australia being the second place in the world to grant suffrage to women after New Zealand. And um, she was the champion of that movement. And so I rang this academic at the University of South Adelaide and... She was the expert on Mary Lee, and I, I said, "Are oh, we going to put her on a coin?" This was back in the '90s, and she burst into tears on the phone and said, "I've been trying to get this woman recognition here in Australia. She is a name we should all know. She was a heroine for Australia. What she did at that particular time, and her speeches resonate today as much as they did when she gave them in the South Australian Parliament." She was a feisty, feisty Irish woman. And um, she 
she should, she's, to me, she should be a legend. Now, in Adelaide, if you walk around um, the main street there, down towards the Museum and Art Gallery, there are some statues, some busts of famous South Australians. And she is one of those. But, and South Australians, some know her. But, you know, so Mary Lee is on the list, of course. So, so people like that, who should have been on lists before now, who weren't. And we put a committee together of all sorts of people, some people from the museum, some of our trustees, um, you know, other people in the community, and we started debating and having these meetings to talk about who should be on this list and from what sector and why, and, and uh, it was a really interesting process to go through. I'm really interested, you said you wanted it to be representative of the true Australia, and I think that's a really interesting, you know, two words because the true Australia changes constantly. It does. Doesn't it? It's, and it's changing right now. Exactly. Um, but in some ways, very quickly. In other ways, certainly not quick enough. Um, but how do you define true Australia? And, and then what role does an institution like the Australian Museum play in that, in reflecting ourselves back to each other as times change? Well, I think that's the great joy of working in a museum is you can step back sometimes and have perspective and think about that. I mean, yes, Australia today is very different than it was in 1850s and 60s, you know, when this museum started really emerging. And um, women were treated very differently then or, or not. And Aboriginal people were treated very differently. Migrants were treated very differently, although we see waves of this. Um, so there are always commonalities back then to now too, but I think it gives you perspective. I think you can look at the past and learn from it and take lessons from it and then help think about today. And, you know, last week when we listened to Dick Smith, who's a fervent Australian, you know, and he, he has a a particular vision for what Australia could be and should be. And I don't necessarily agree with all of his um, ideologies, but I think it's really important that each and every one of us think about that more. And if the museum can be a place that provokes thought or debate or discussion around that, then I think we're doing our job. I don't think we should be prescriptive about it. I think... Um, you look out on the floor today and see the school children who come here and you see how Australia is changing from immigration. And personally, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I was very lucky from at age five, we moved overseas for my dad's job. And I learned that the world was a very big place and had lots of different people in it. And my life has only been richer because of... Um, knowing people from many different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think Australia in 100 years, yes, will look quite different from today too. But, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't hang on to the values that made this country what it is. And we have some very strong values in Australia. And I do think that, you know, I've been really fortunate to travel the length and breadth of Australia when we were doing clean-up. Remember, I was a young woman in my late 20s and I had to go around the country convincing principally men in local government and state government 
this was a good thing to do. They, you know, people in Western Australia, the men I dealt with there, weren't very nice, you know. They look at you coming from the east telling us what to do. It wasn't, no, we're not. We just hope that you'll get involved. And But what I did learn was that Australians were great people, no matter where we went. Um, all around Australia just met fantastic people who just wanted to do the right thing by their community, who wanted to improve their community, who wanted to look after waterways better, who wanted to have a better life for their children or grandchildren. And that binds us together, that we have this fantastic country that we live in together pretty peacefully, you know, compared to most places on earth. And there are some strong values behind that. And um, I think we're very... I think we need to recognise how fortunate we are and keep that for the future. Is part of the problem, Kim, and I know you've worked in and around the media industry for a long time, is part of the problem that everything we see and read is an extreme. It's the extreme left or the extreme right and everything is an argument, everything is a battle because I, I, see, I see Australia how you see it. But in the middle, you know, we've got this fantastic country with great people from here, there and everywhere that all just want a better place. Well, I think social media has... I mean, extremes have been highlighted at different times through history. It's not just now through social media, but that's, I think, what is driving um, the focus on extremes at the moment. It's kind you know, of unsocial media, isn't all, it? All of our successful leaders in Australia, successful prime ministers, for example, are the people who've pretty much tried to govern down the middle. You know, because you have to, because that's where most of us sit. Um, I hate it when people try and appeal to either the far right or the far left in something, because it's not where our psyche is at as a, as a population. I mean, you know... The gay marriage votes um, shocked a lot of people about how Australians voted and also particularly the electorates and how they voted in different ways. And I think that's, that's, that was a little barometer of, hey, maybe uh, some of our politicians don't have their finger on the pulse at all. And uh, it's unfortunate that social media highlights the negativity that happens. I mean, it's happening in America too, that, you know, it's a very um, interesting medium to think that you can be anonymous and troll people like, you know, in that way. It's dreadful in that sense. It didn't exist before in that way. If you wanted to say something, you had to come out and front the person, basically, and be very public about it. Now you can be hidden about your beliefs or weirdness. So, you know, we're living in a interesting times but that too will play out mm. um, and I think so long as we hold on to those core values that our parents taught us or our grandparents taught us um, about fairness I think um, will go a long way in Australia. I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we open it up to the floor and take your questions for Kim. Um, I guess one of the biggest challenges in a job like yours is finding the money to do what you want to do and what you need to do. And um, it's a difficult environment, isn't it? Looking for money and, and the sorts of money that you need for, for an organisation, an institution like this. It is. Well, historically, Australia has not been as philanthropic as some other countries around the world. 
some European countries, America, because we always had a really good social safety net system here. It was always seen as the government's responsibility to look after people. And as that social safety net is being further peeled away, I think um, there is more pressure on the wealthier end of town to contribute to institutions like ours or indeed whether it be health institutions, all sorts of... I mean, that competing for that philanthropic dollar is very difficult. We, um, we need to raise money from the private sector now. And, uh, you know, a few years ago I looked at the list of the top ten wealthiest people in Australia and only four of them had claimed a tax deduction for any charitable giving that year. Now, whether or not they decided not to claim a tax deduction and just let the you know, Australia have it, I doubt it. Um, because they, you know, wealthy people want to minimise their tax as much as possible. So I think the tradition of philanthropy needs to um, be more embedded now. We're going to need it more in the future. And look, the rich have got very rich in this country and in other countries too. And I think the sense of giving back... And we all want to give back. You know, I imagine there are many people in this audience who per capita percentage of their wealth give more than the wealthiest. Mm. So you can give back in lots of ways. You can be a volunteer and give back. And that's really terribly important. We rely on lots of volunteers here at the museum. We have a list of over 500 people who volunteer here. Um, we've got a growing base of donors as well. But it is really, it's really difficult and competitive and it's relentless. I mean, we have to raise now, as part of our development, redevelopment of the museum, we're calling it Project Discovery, I think, um, Discover. So we're, we received a $50.5 million grant from the state government earlier this year and the condition around that is that we have to raise $7 million ourselves towards it. And... Um, that's, that's not an easy job. So it's, uh, we've got a great team here at the museum and everyone is committed to doing that. The staff are committed and our um, different boards are committed. We have the Australian Museum Foundation leading that charge. So, But it's tough. Um, I've got to let you know that Kim is always telling me in, in recent times that, you know, she's so old now, which just makes me feel really old because <laughs> you're not that much older than me, Kim. Kim was my first boss. Um, so, so we do go back uh, a fair way. I, I want to ask you this. I've always wanted to ask you this. Was there ever a time when you were shy? <laughs> when you didn't just bowl up to anybody any time, ask them for anything or to give or contribute or to make a difference? No. <laughs> um, my mother used to say, because I talked a lot as a child and still do now, mum used to say, did you have gramophone needles for breakfast? <laughs> no, I, I always liked chatting to people and um, never was afraid to ask anyone for anything. I mean, you know, I, I, I can name on one hand the times I've felt slightly intimidated in my life by a situation or a person. I bet you can't. <laughs> well, the first one, I can't. Um, well, you know, I was chatting to some um, women in the audience before. In 2010, I managed Oprah's visit to Australia. Um, and we all called her Miss Winfrey. Not Oprah. 
because, you know, she's such a legend, I suppose. And um, it was only later, um, during the tour, that I got to call her Oprah, I think. That was drinking uh, tequila shots with her. <laughs> but, you know, she was a bit intimidating. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Fair enough. What would you like your legacy to be? Tequila shot. No. Um, <laughs> look, I just think you've got to give it your best shot, no matter what you're doing. Tequila shot, good shot. Um, no matter what you do, give it your best shot. And don't give up if you really want to do something. I mean, that's really hard to say because sometimes things work against you and if the, t you know, if the timing's wrong, if a whole, you know, a number of things have to go your way. You need luck on your side a lot of the time. And I've been, touch wood, really lucky in life as well, um, that luck has often been on my side. I've been in the right place at the right time. But just give it your best. I mean, don't cheat yourself by doing it half-baked. All right. I think a really nice note to open up to the floor. Who'd like to ask him the first question? Don't be afraid. Actually, be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> I did see some hands start to go up. Yep, there we go. Hi. I've been blown away by the people that you know. You've known everyone that we've been to so far. You either went to school with them or, and, and the variety of jobs that you've done. So what was the beginning? How did, how did that all start and your, and your training? Um, I had two parents who both left school at 14... And growing up, the first... If you had have asked me at age five what I was going to do, my response was, I'm going to university. Both of my parents, especially my mother, instilled in me the need for an education. And um, moving overseas at age five was the best eye-opener in education a kid from the northern beaches could have had, really. Um, it opened up a whole world. I, it gave me that understanding that this was an incredible, different world that we lived in. And we, we moved to England. We went via ship, so we went up through the Suez Canal before it closed. That, that was 1965. And um, it just changed my perspective on everything. It made me love me going to museums. And every weekend my mother made us go on an an excursion either in the family car or in a bus, I hate bus trips now, um, to a historic site. Either, it, you know, the four of us would go off and uh, she would pick them <laughs> and we would have to learn about them and read everything and look at everything and uh, at this castle or Runnymede or wherever it was and then on the way home we would be quizzed about what we saw so that, that is so funny. That's so funny because uh, we lived in China for a while and our youngest son was three when we first moved there. And any time people came to visit, of course they wanted to go to the Great Wall. And so this particular weekend, our three-year-old says, where are we going this weekend? I said, we're going to the Great Wall. And he's like, not the Great Wall again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you think people who give their right arm for that sort of experience. Um, so, you know, it was, it was having, I think... Um, Parents who, who made us believe, and I have a sister who's a couple of years older than me, that we could do anything that we set our mind to do. And um, I went, you know, to a girls' school where that's just what we were taught. It wasn't, 
you know, that we had to compete against. If we wanted to do something, we could do it. And um, I was very outspoken. You know, I debated. I, w I did my first debate in primary school and I was terrible. And I will never forget the embarrassment I felt at being so awful. And I was determined I was going to be the best then at that. Like never to stand up and not give a good talk or speech or something. And then I started doing competitive public speaking at, um, I think at age 13, 12, 13, something like that. And uh, people, that, that was an incredible advantage going through school and university to be able to think on your feet and um, to be able to share ideas with people off the cuff. And uh, I always say to people who ask me about their kids or grandkids, what should they do? I said, make sure they can speak. You know, Australian people were never taught to speak up. In other countries, they were in America. Everybody has an opinion. Now, they're not always the right opinions or good ones, but they, they're not afraid to speak their mind. And I think that um, it's a great ability, a great asset for you to have that inbuilt confidence that you're not afraid to, sp to give a speech or to share your ideas and opinions. Mm. Um, and to, you know, and part of that is learning to listen to other people's opinions and respect those as well. So, you know, by doing competitive debating and public speaking or through school, I wanted to be an actress, actually. That was, uh, NIDA rejected me twice. Um, it's why, you know, I've always thought George Miller one day would see the inner talent, but never did. <laughs> Next question. I've got one. Um, let me first start off with saying I think you really are the bell of the bell curve. <laughs> but I'd like to talk to you about my Great Wall of China, which is technology. I'm educated, but only last year I was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I don't think I could get through a website to find employment at the moment. And that's the way all jobs are online. I'm just wondering what you can suggest about that for me. Yes, I can actually, because in my own family, um, I've had a family member who has had issues and um, lost a number of jobs and was unemployed for a very long time. And I got very frustrated with her, saying, well, surely you can find a job online. But in her case, there was just this barrier there. And it really, um, and she's very well qualified, but just couldn't break through. It was like a dead end every time she even sent off a resume. You know, hundreds of resumes, letters, never could break through. And in the end, she was helped actually through the um, government employment service. She was on unemployment benefits. And they said, look, we're going to put you in a training program to do retail sales. Now. This, she felt this was so far below her. But she went and did it anyway because she thought, oh, well, I might learn something new. And she got a job through this scheme out of, after the six weeks of training at Maya. And it gave her a year of steady employment. And that's now led to a much better job on double the money she was earning and has improved her confidence no end. So I'm a great believer that you know, you, every, all of us need purpose in life. That you've got to have purpose to get up every day and to give it that best shot. If you don't have it, 
then you're in a no-win situation. So how do you get that? How do you break through? And I think it's just take any opportunity you can. Do something that would surprise yourself to not do. I mean, it's hard. And, and you may feel degraded a little, like, by doing it. But if you take that first step to another, it's remarkable what opportunities could open up. Like, if you... Yeah, it's like if you sit at home every day, nothing's going to happen. Opportunity is not going to knock on your front door. It's Try my again. Con- yeah. Oh, recently I was unsuccessful in even getting an interview for a fairly low-level job, casual on the weekend with the state government. I was pretty upset about this because I had given them many volunteer hours some time ago and I thought I knew that area extremely well. So I did go in to see the, the personnel manager of the place that I applied for a job with and she was extremely pleasant. She did talk to me for about three hours and I did explain to her some of my achievements um, in many different areas and while she was sympathetic, saying that she knew it was difficult for many people, including people with ADHD, people from a language other than English background, but that was what the state government used. When pressed, she did offer to send the thing I wrote to the diversity committee, but that is where it lies now, which to me sounds like it's a bit of a cemetery where it's gone to. Um, Well, one of the things, the good thing about working in the government Mm. is they do take diversity seriously. And... Uh, uh, can I beg to differ? They have. Can, can, can I can I just jump in? Mm. And and I, I don't mean to interrupt you at all, but I think this is it's a really good discussion and mm. and valid points that you're raising. Can we pick this up after the two yeah. o'clock? Okay. Only only to after. allow other people to ask questions. Is that okay with you? Yep. Okay. okay. Thanks so I much. I know there was someone Sorry. here that wanted to ask a question. Yep. Um, it's. It's more about, um, I just want to ask you a little bit about being the first woman in the role, but also just generally being in the leadership role as women amongst a lot of men, because it's quite topical at the moment about the gender equality. And I guess it's, um, my question to you is, what is your advice to the younger people coming up and wanting to sort of step into the leadership role, but doesn't quite have the confidence or the <laughs> to to quite pursue it um what would your advice be to them keep going i mean i think that you learn about leadership as you go through life it it doesn't necessarily come naturally i mean yes i was a bossy child probably in the playground and organized people but you know that there's probably that bossy woman now maybe um but keep keep going like if you've got your mind set on something you know only you can make it happen so don't give up um I always say I don't like taking no for an answer I always find another way around so you know you get setbacks I'm not saying it's not a straight path to anything it just isn't you zigzag all the way there and go around things and look for ways. But if you're determined to get somewhere, you will, you will get there. And so learning, you know, learning about 
leadership and really leadership is as much about empowering others to do things than it is you doing them too. I mean, people want inspiration, yes, and they want some vision, but it's really good leadership is allowing others to shine and to grow as well. I mean, I'm very proud here. We have um, Dr Rebecca Johnson, or now Professor Rebecca Johnson, who is the first woman to lead our Australian Museum Research Institute. And uh, she's an extraordinary young scientist. Young, I mean, she's in her 40s, you know. But, but world-class and world-leading in the work she does. And um, seeing Rebecca grow in that role is, is very satisfying. So, look, I just think you get opportunities offered to you. Take them. Take risks. Um, the, I've done a number of things where I've just stepped out of my comfort zone and taken risks. Um, and, and it was very unsettling at the time. But you get through them, you know, like... You, the resilience, I guess, that you need to find inside yourself if you want to get there. I mean, I look at some of these people who run these large corporations. I think, oh my God, how do you do that? You know, I, I said to um, a man I really admire, who's actually now head of premier and cabinet in New South Wales, so he's the most senior public servant in New South Wales, and I went to seek his advice uh, about something because this is the first time I've worked in government. And I said, you know what, how do you keep on top of all of this? He had a multi-billion dollar budget in transport back then. And he said, oh, well, I, I pay attention to the detail. He said, I try and stay, you know, watch the details because if they're going wrong there, then there's other things going wrong. And I went, right, watch the details. And then he said, oh, and I've got a photographic memory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, <laughs> So um, I, I just think that, um, you know, everyone says it. It sounds trite, but, like, if you want to do something, you've got to set your mind to it. Have goals. I didn't have goals when I was young. I knew I wanted to do things, but I didn't have specific goals. I wish someone had said to me, have goals. They might have been the wrong goals, you know, like they might have changed over time. But it wasn't until um, I was living and working in America that... Um, I met someone who talked to me about goal setting and, um, and I worked out what I thought I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It sort of came true. Is that what you would do differently if you had your time again? Yeah. Um, what after they stuffed me at the museum and put it... Exactly. <laughs> Have you floating above the entrance Come back there? and haunt everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, look... I've met a lot of fantastic, successful people in my life and most of them were pretty goal-oriented, focused people, um, very young. And it took me longer to get there, I think. Um, so I do think it's really important. But you've got to be able to bring people with you in that process to, you know... Back in my 20s, we worked together on surfing mm. and I also worked on all the solo round-the-world yacht races, which was really interesting. And here were the people um, who are the most selfish group of people I've ever met in my life, solo sailors. It's all about them. And yet there's teams of people behind them helping with things and everyone working to their goal. And a lot of the time they're not, you know, they're so self-focused because they've got to survive and they've got to, you know, get there. Um, 
but you know, it's goals and steps. I mean, I worked with Jessica Watson um, on her solo around the world race in the beginning and um, uh, quest in the beginning. And um, Jess is an amazing, amazing young woman. I mean, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met and had the pleasure of working with. And she had a goal, mm. a fixed goal, and she got there. And um, her feet is still extraordinary. And she's going to be an amazing adult. I mean, she is already. She's in her 20s now. She's just finished her MBA in Melbourne and she's started working and... Uh, she comes up to visit me from time to time here to ask my advice about something. Um, I always say I think I should be asking her advice, you know. <laughs> she's just an extraordinary person. But, yeah, goals. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have goals mm. earlier. Mm. There was someone else at the front that had a question? And then we'll move up the back. Kim, you've done a lot of philanthropic work yourself and that gives a lot back to the community and to the world in general. But what has that done for you? How has that changed you in how you approach your life and in how you approach your work as well? Well, money, believe it or not, has never been a huge motivator for me. And I think in every study done of employees, you know, yes, money is good to have. You know, you can lead a lifestyle, but it's always been more about the job itself and getting the satisfaction from that job and working in the not-for-profit sector, we used to joke a lot of the time, not-for-profit, not-for-fun. Um, <laughs> you know, I was watching people in banks, you know, earning a lot of money and not earning as much and thinking I'm going to be a poor old lady, but, you know, I'll be all right. You know, it's, it, it, it's the sense of satisfaction of doing a job well, of, of doing your best, of giving being part of your community, and you get a lot of joy back from that. I do. It's, it's very sustaining, you know. I think you talk to anyone who, um, you know, whether it's volunteering with Meals on Wheels or it doesn't matter what you do, it is much more satisfying. You get more back out of it. I mean, so many people I know, some of whom work here, who, you know, are heavily involved in their their school for their children or local community thing or the nippers or whatever it might be, you know, how do they have time to give back, you know, when they're trying to run a family? They do it because you're part of your community. And if we're, if we're not giving back in our community, what is there? Why, do we want to go shopping all the time? No. You know, that's Singapore. <laughs> you know, you want to play a role in your community and your society and, and have the fabric of our society enriched by that. And it's just wonderfully personally satisfying, you know, to think that if you did help make a difference, that is a good thing. There's a question up the back. Two, in fact. Yes, Kim. Um, to get back to the museum, when you have big exhibits from overseas like the Terracotta Warriors and the Mammoth, through whose suggestion is that done? The researchers, scientists, or and who does the funding? Does that country take care of it or do we have to pay big money? No, we, we, we pay this end. So whichever... Um, so the, the, the international museum sector um, creates what we know as blockbuster exhibitions. We have two touring at North America now that we created here in Australia. Our Spiders exhibition is at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada. It's the largest museum in North America at the moment, doing super well. 
and also our Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family exhibition that we created here is touring North America as well to record crowds. And we're doing that. The reason we're, we've taken those two exhibitions offshore and is selling them for the season. So it's like you rent them in and there's a guaranteed monthly fee that has to be paid. And that hopefully, as that business model gets up and running for us, could generate us... Um, as we tour more exhibitions, you know, a clear profit of a million dollars a year, which, you know, we need to our bottom line. So that's good. It also builds our reputation. It gives our exhibition creators and our scientists an opportunity to show their talents on the global stage. So it's a very good brand builder and reputation builder for the museum. When we bring exhibitions in here, and um, our Wales exhibition it opens on the 20th of October, and that's from Te Papa, Museum in Wellington, and it's a beautiful exhibition about um, the story of Wales in the Pacific and uh, the Maori connection with Wales, as well as our own Indigenous connection with Wales. It's a really fantastic exhibition. So we do a deal. It's a business deal. We sit down and negotiate. So somebody might be travelling and see a great exhibition overseas, or we get approached by somebody. Um, I love the fact that when we bought in Mammoths, a lot of us staff argued with me and I won. And uh, that was fun. Um, or, you, or we create our own. And um, we've got a number of exhibition ideas in development currently. So anyone, if anyone has a good idea for an exhibition, you know, we look at it, we have to develop a business case around it. We've got to say, how many tickets will we sell? Who, you know, who is the audience this is going to appeal to? What else is maybe going to happen in Sydney at that time? We do the big blockbusters usually over the summer period. Um, we've got very restricted exhibition space, which is why we're building new space on site uh, so that we can take the larger exhibitions like in 2021, 20, Tutankhamun. Um, so it, it's a business. So, you know, and as a museum director, you have to be on top of the business side of it because if you guess wrong or plan incorrectly, you can lose a lot of money. I mean, some exhibitions cost a lot of money to bring to the country. So, number one, you know, if we have them for six months, so the monthly fee over that time, I've got to sell enough tickets for that, and I'm competing with Hoyts to get the bums on seats. Um, competing for the public's attention, trying to break through the clutter of everything else happening around town. and. Sometimes we get support from Destination New South Wales, the tourism body, who might um, sponsor the exhibition to give us some funding to do additional marketing because they feel it's going to bring tourists in to the city. But it's a, it's a gamble. And so, um, you know, but sometimes you have to trust your gut. And I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to take a risk sometimes either because I have that... Um, you know, I've been working for a long time now, um, nearly 40 years. So I've got lots of life experience behind me to go, I think that will work, you know. And sometimes it's gut. Sometimes we do a lot of research. So we ask our visitors to the museum. You might get stopped from time to time by a person asking you questions about, oh, what do you think about this exhibition? So we'll put it into audience research as well to see if the audience wants to see it. So lots of factors come into play. But it's a fascinating area, actually, because it's that real business um, side of the museum. And it's really important because the more people we get through the door, the more people we can attract maybe to join up as members 
of the museum, the more they'll go to another gallery here for, and learn something about what the museum is doing or think of supporting it in some way or meet you know, a scientist on the floor who's doing something. So it's our goal uh, collectively for the museum to be as a lively, interesting, dynamic place as much as possible. Um, if you haven't been to Nature Photographer of the Year, the Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year exhibition upstairs, please go, it's beautiful. You know, and it's lovely. Um, museums are described sometimes as slow and reflective spaces where you can step back and look at something and, and without being hassled by the what's going on outside. And, and so there's special places for that. I, of course, also like noise so and activity. So, you know, the combination of those things. I hope the Westpac Long Gallery, for example, is a really reflective space um, where, where each cabinet tells a story and reveals something about our extraordinary collections. So, you know, each, each you can create these really wonderful spaces through it. And we've got some really exciting plans over the next few years to bring our collections out and to um, create exhibitions that we will tour. We're, we're working on a fascinating sharks exhibition, actually, long term. Our taxidermist downstairs, you should, you know, sharks don't have a um, skeleton, it's cartilage. So how do, you know, and she's been peeling back the layers there. Fascinating stuff. Mm, mm. I think we might be able to squeeze one more question in. Yep. Thank you. Um, it's a very short question. What do you think has been the most significant insight or approach? Oh, that's. <laughs> what do you think has been the most significant insight, approach, or contribution that you have offered to a museum since you have the the position as director? Oh, I, I loved um, that we've sort of formalised citizen science here. So um, the museum had been involved in citizen science projects since the 1970s. There was a lovely project created out of here that went on to um, be run by a different organisation called Birds in Backyards. And uh, our team here six years ago created the DigiVol project, which is the digital volunteers to help us digitise collections. Paul Flemons did that. And to put um, an umbrella over that for the Centre for Citizen Science. I've always you know, been involved in citizen science initiatives um, cleanup. We used to do the rubbish report where we'd count at different sites the sort of rubbish that was picked up and that was published every year and used to inform government policy. And then when I was at National Geographic, I co-created a project called the Genographic Project, which is a population DNA study around the world that involves you know, swabbing your cheek before Ancestry.com did it uh, to find out where your deep ancestry came from and, of course, working with Indigenous peoples around the world. And that is citizen science on steroids and now well over a million people have participated in that project and really helped fill in some of the gaps in our understanding of human history. So I think citizen science is wonderful and last year we launched Frog ID which I'm very proud of, uh, with Dr Jodie Rowley here, who's our herpetologist, and uh, there are 240-odd frog species in Australia. We don't know what's happening to them. Frogs are among the most endangered group of animals in the world. Uh, they're impacted by climate change, by urbanisation, and other changes uh, that are happening in our environment. And so Jodie wanted to find out what's happening to Australia's frogs because they are the canary in the coal mine of uh, showing us that not all is well. 
And uh, Frog ID, we created the app with IBM support. They gave us half a million dollars of in-kind and cash support to develop that. Uh, we applied to the federal government for their new citizen science grants and we were successful in gaining the largest grant of almost half a million dollars. And so we created Frog ID and as of this morning, um, over 60,000 people have downloaded the app for free across Australia, which is just great. And um, we've registered and identified over 35,716 frog calls. Um, frogs are identified by the call they make, not by what they look like, by and large. And uh, frog ID, we, t we coined the term audio DNA to record that. So over the next few years, we'll be continuing to roll that project out and hopefully we'll discover some new species of frogs, but we'll have that snapshot because of the public. Like, you know, citizen science is coming into its own because of the smartphone. You know, that amount of technology that you hold in your hand is a game changer for citizen scientists. And uh, to think that in a couple of years' time, we will have a handle on 240 species of frogs and what they're doing in Australia will be significant for biodiversity planning and for species conservation. And that's a great achievement because frogs are really important, cute little animals. And it's not easy being green. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the smartphone has given us um, so much. It's changed our lives in a way that we really can't measure. But the one thing it cannot do is give us more time. And we have gone past our time today. Sorry. Kim, before we wrap up, did you want to just mention a couple of events that are happening next week? You've got yes. the last one in this series. Yes. Um, Next and week. Next week. Hmm. Thanks, also, thanks to Tracy, too. I'll thank her in a minute. Um, our final guest for the series next week will be Noel Gordon. Noel, of course, um, helped, was at the CSIRO and the team that created Wi-Fi, changed the world that we live in today, and an extraordinary Australian. And, of course, the t that Wi-Fi team uh, is featured in our 100 Treasures group of people. So we'll be in conversation with Noel next week. I can't wait to meet him. I don't know him, so that'll be fun. And also, I just wanted to mention, we're doing a lot more in um, the climate change space because I think it's timely that we do that here and the museum is a good place to do that. Dr Jenny Newell up there is spearheading a lot of that work here. Um, and we've got next Thursday evening the tackling... Is that this Thursday or next Thursday? Thursday week. Tackling Climate Change, You're More Powerful Than You Think, a night talk featuring seasoned campaigners Anna Rose and Joseph Zane Zakulu of 350.org. Now, Anna is someone I've worked with a lot. I launched her book for her and did the tour with her. She's a terrific young Australian and um, I think will be well worth listening to. So if you around next Thursday week, try and come along to that. Um, we're doing a program here at the moment called Oceana Rising and it's part of that, working with Pacific communities who, of course, are so severely impacted by um, climate change and they don't have much money and they don't have a big advocacy platform. They're trying to draw attention to what's happening in their communities and uh, we think the museum is a good space for them to be able to voice those issues too. So that's good coming up. But Tracy, can I just thank you? No, 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 I no, no, no. She is a. Re I listen to Grandstand and also to the Ticket because you raise issues in sport, which is very much part of the Australian 
culture that most people don't raise. But Tracy is involved in many other issues as well. And it's just wonderful to have you come today. Thank you for doing this for me. Thank you, Kim. Please thank Kim McKay. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.